Hey everybody, this is Ruben, and you're listening to Amazing Stories. The dominant primordial beast was strong in Buck, and under the fierce conditions of trail life, it grew and grew. On the other hand, possibly because he divined in Buck a dangerous rival, Spitz never lost an opportunity of showing his teeth. It was war between them. Spitz, as lead dog and acknowledged master of the team, felt his supremacy threatened by this strange Southland dog. He was a masterful dog, and what made him dangerous was the fact that the club of the man in the red sweater had knocked all blind pluck and rashness out of his desire for mastery. He was preeminently cunning and could bide his time with a patience that was nothing less than primitive. It was inevitable that the clash for leadership should come. Buck openly threatened the other's leadership. He came between him and the shirks he should have punished, and he did it deliberately. One night, there was a heavy snowfall, and in the morning, Pike, the malingerer, did not appear. He was securely hidden in his nest under a foot of snow. Francois called him and sought him in vain. Spitz was wild with wrath, but when he was at last unearthed and Spitz flew at him to punish him, Buck flew with equal rage in between. So unexpected was it, and so shrewdly managed, that Spitz was hurled backward and off his feet. In the days that followed, Buck still continued to interfere between Spitz and the culprits. He did it craftily when Francois was not around. With the covert mutiny of Buck, a general insubordination sprang up and increased. Things no longer went right. There was continual bickering and jangling. Trouble was always afoot and at the bottom of it was Buck. He kept Francois busy, for the dog driver was in constant apprehension of the life-and-death struggle between the two, which he knew must take place sooner or later. And on more than one night, the sounds of quarreling and strife among the other dogs turned him out of his sleeping robe, fearful that Buck and Spitz were at it. But the opportunity did not present itself, and they pulled into Dawson one dreary afternoon with the great fight still to come. Here were many men and countless dogs, and Buck found them all at work. Here and there Buck met Southland dogs, but in the main they were the wild wolf-husky breed. Every night, regularly at nine, at twelve, at three, they lifted a nocturnal song, a weird and eerie chant, in which it was Buck's delight to join. With the aurora borealis flaming coldly overhead, or the stars leaping in the frost dance, and the land numb and frozen under its pall of snow, this song of the huskies might have been the defiance of life, only it was pitched in minor key, with long-drawn wailings and half-sobs, and was more the pleading of life, the articulate travail of existence. It was an old song, old as the breed itself, one of the first songs of the younger world in a day when songs were sad. It was invested with the woe of unnumbered generations, this plaint by which Buck was so strangely stirred. When he moaned and sobbed, 
It was with the pain of living that was of old the pain of his wild fathers, and the fear and mystery of the cold and dark that was to them fear and mystery, and that he should be stirred by it, marked the completeness with which he harked back through the ages of fire and roof to the raw beginnings of life in the howling ages. They made sixty mile, which is a fifty mile run, on one day, and the second day saw them booming up the Yukon. But such splendid running was achieved not without great trouble and vexation on the part of Francois. No more was Spitz a leader greatly to be feared. They quarreled and bickered more than ever among themselves, till at times the camp was a howling bedlam. Dave and Saul Lex alone were unaltered, though they were made irritable by the unending squabbling. Francois swore strange barbarous oaths and stamped the snow in futile rage and tore his hair. At the mouth of the Tkina, one night after supper, Dub turned up a snowshoe rabbit, blundered it, and missed. In a second, the whole team was in full cry. Buck was ranging at the head, running the wild thing down. But Spitz, cold and calculating, even in his supreme moods, left the pack and cut across a narrow neck of land where the creek made a long bend around. Buck did not know of this, and as he rounded the bend, the frost wraith of a rabbit still flitting before him, he saw another and larger frost wraith leap from the overhanging bank into the immediate path of the rabbit. It was Spitz. The rabbit could not turn, and as the white teeth broke its back in midair, it shrieked as loudly as any stricken man may shriek. At sound of this, the cry of life, plunging down from life's apex in the grip of death, the fall pack at Buck's heels raised a hell's chorus of delight. Buck did not cry out. He did not check himself, but drove in upon Spitz, shoulder to shoulder, so hard he missed the throat. They rolled over and over in the powdery snow. The time had come. It was to the death. As they circled about, snarling, ears laid back, keenly watchful for the advantage. The scene came to Buck with a sense of familiarity. He seemed to remember it all, the white woods and earth and moonlight and the thrill of battle. Spitz was a practiced fighter. Bitter rage was his, but never blind rage. In passion to rend and destroy, he never forgot that his enemy was in like passion to rend and destroy. He never rushed till he was prepared to receive a rush, never attacked till he had first defended that attack. In vain, Buck strove to sink his teeth in the neck of the big white dog. Fang clashed fang, and lips were cut and bleeding, but Buck could not penetrate his enemy's guard. Then Buck took to rushing, as though for the throat, when, suddenly drawing back his head and curving in from the side, he would drive his shoulder at the shoulder of Spitz, as a ram by which to overthrow him. But instead, Buck's shoulder was slashed down each time as Spitz leaped lightly away. Spitz was untouched, while Buck was streaming with blood and panting hard. The fight was growing desperate. But Buck possessed a quality that made for greatness, imagination. He rushed as though attempting the old shoulder trick, but at the last instant swept low to the snow and in. 
His teeth closed on Spitz's left foreleg. There was a crunch of breaking bone, and the white dog faced him on three legs. Thrice Buck tried to knock him over, then repeated the trick and broke the right foreleg. Despite the pain and helplessness, Spitz struggled madly to keep up. He saw the silent circle, with gleaming eyes, lolling tongues, and silvery breaths drifting upward, closing in upon him, as he had seen similar circles close in upon beaten antagonists in the past. Only this time, he was the one who was beaten. There was no hope for him. Buck was inexorable. Mercy was a thing reserved for gentler climbs. He maneuvered for the final rush. The circle had tightened till he could feel the breaths of the huskies on his flanks. He could see them, beyond spits and to either side, half crouching for the spring, their eyes fixed upon him. A pause seemed to fall. Every animal was motionless, as though turned to stone. Only Spitz quivered and bristled as he staggered back and forth, snarling with horrible menace as though to frighten off impending death. Then Buck sprang in and out, but while he was in, shoulder had at last squarely met shoulder. The dark circle became a dot on the moon-flooded snow as Spitz disappeared from view. Buck stood and looked on, the successful champion the dominant primordial beast who had made his kill and found it good. The team stood harnessed to the sled in an unbroken line, ready for the trail. There was no place for Buck save at the front. His traces were fastened, the sled broken out, and with both men running, they dashed out onto the river trail. At a bound, Buck took up the duties of leadership and where judgment was required and quick thinking and quick acting, he showed himself the superior even of Spitz, of whom Francois had never seen an equal. But it was in giving the law and making his mates live up to it that Buck excelled. Dave and Saul Lex did not mind the change in leadership. It was none of their business. Their business was to toil and toil mightily in the traces. So long as that were not interfered with, they did not care what happened. Billy, the good-natured, could lead for all they cared, so long as he kept order. The rest of the team, however, had grown unruly during the last days of Spitz, and their surprise was great now that Buck proceeded to lick them into shape. The general tone of the team picked up immediately. It recovered its old-time solidarity, and once more the dogs leaped as one dog in the traces. The thirty-mile river was comparatively coated with ice, and they covered in one day going out what had taken them ten days coming in. And on the last night of the second week, they topped White Pass and dropped down the sea slope with the lights of Skagway and of the shipping at their feet. It was a record run. For three days, Perrault and Francois were deluged with invitations to drink, while the team was the constant center of a worshipful crowd of dogbusters and mushers. Next came official orders. Francois called Buck to him, threw his arms around him, wept over him. And that was the last of Francois and Perrault. Like other men, they passed out of Buck's life for good. A Scotch half-breed took charge of him and his mates, and in company with a dozen other dog teams, he started back over the weary trail to Dawson. 
It was no light running now, nor record time, but heavy toil each day, with a heavy load behind, for this was the mail train, carrying word from the world to the men who sought gold under the shadow of the pole. It was a monotonous life. One day was very like another. At night, camp was made. Also the dogs were fed. There were fierce fighters among them, but three battles with the fiercest brought Buck to mastery, so that when he bristled and showed his teeth, they got out of his way. Best of all, he loved to lie near the fire. Hind legs crouched under him, forelegs stretched out in front, head raised, and eyes blinking dreamily at the flames. Sometimes he thought of Judge Miller's big house in the sun-kissed Santa Clara Valley, but oftener he remembered the man in the red sweater, the death of Curly, the great fight with Spitz, and the good things he had eaten or would like to eat. He was not homesick. Far more potent were the memories of his heredity that gave things he had never seen before a seeming familiarity. The instincts which had lapsed in later days quickened and became alive again. Thirty days from the time it left Dawson, the saltwater mail, with Buck and his mates at the fore, arrived at Skagway. They were in a wretched state, worn out and worn down. They were all terribly footsore. No spring or rebound was left in them. They were dead tired. Thank you for listening, and don't forget to join us tomorrow for yet another amazing story.